welcome to the new 2023 series of our Bridging the Gaps podcast, produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and EHFF, the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Sean O'Conline, Agustaf Altruoy-Galair. And I'm Caroline White. In this month's podcast, Sean and I spoke with Marguerite Freeling, who's the Knowledge Co-Lead of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, or WEALL. We All is a collaboration of organisations, alliances, movements and individuals working towards a well-being economy, delivering human and ecological well-being. FASTA has been a member of We All since 2020, and along with several other organisations, we've co-founded a well-being economy hub in Ireland. While it can be easy to criticise the current economic model, with its dependence on GDP, growth and its extreme and increasing inequalities, it can be more of a challenge to try to show exactly how a better economy might work, and indeed what it might look like. But one obvious improvement is how we actually measure progress. Ireland, along with many other countries, has been developing and adopting a well-being framework that contains a dashboard of indicators. These are intended to give a snapshot of how Ireland is doing in many different areas, including health, education, employment and the environment. But can these well-being frameworks, with their array of indicators, really help to bring about a transformation of the economy? And how are the domains such as culture and minority languages included, for example? Marguerite, who's originally from the Netherlands, has extensive experience in working on the development of well-being frameworks and their use in policy, including in New Zealand and for the OECD. We'll go over to our interview with her now. So, Marguerite, we're delighted to have you on our podcast. Thanks so much for agreeing to be interviewed. Could you say a few words about your journey towards working on well-being framework policy and what sort of experiences have you had that led you to choose this area of focusing in your life? Yes, of course. So I'm originally from the Netherlands. I'm a sociologist by background. Um, In 2008, I moved to New Zealand. So there I had the opportunity to work for their National Bureau of Statistics uh, on the development of new societal progress indicators. So this was in 2008, so just after the Siglitz report had been um, released. And I worked on the development of core social progress indicators, both from a generic point of view, as well as from an indigenous Maori perspective on what well-being means. And of course, all of this indicator development and societal well-being measurement is really important. But my interest has always been in how to make sure that these new social and environmental indicators would be truly integrated at the heart of public policy. Because I would see annual report after annual report being filled up with all these new indicators, but nothing really seemed to change much in terms of how public policy was done. So I moved from New Zealand's uh, National Bureau of Statistics to their Ministry of Finance, um, who were working on a more policy-focused well-being framework called the Living Centers Framework. And they worked on that as a way to better integrate well-being evidence into their policy advice. Um, now, this was in 2018, and the new government, led by Jacinda Ardern, uh, came in, and they announced that they wanted to use the New Zealand well-being framework, the Living Centers Framework, as the basis for their budget decision-making. So that means that now budget decision-making in New Zealand um, is based on a comprehensive scan of societal well-being evidence across 
environmental, social, and economic domains. And I think for me, it's been really fascinating to see how incorporating the Living Standards Framework into the government budget process uh, made sure that it was no longer just a treasury internal framework, but had become became a government-wide framework for policy assessment. Now, ever since, I've been really inspired by the ways in which um, governments work with well-being in their policy development and design. I'm now based at the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, and that's what I love about the work there. So we're trying to bring all these different examples together, because so often people say this cannot be done. Uh, and I find that these examples are really powerful because they sh show that change is possible. Thank you. And, and just for people who might not know about frameworks much, the Stiglitz report that you referred to earlier there, that, that's the report on getting past GDP, isn't it? That's from around 2008 exactly. or so. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Moving beyond GDP, but also looking at distribution rather than only averages uh, and really taking a holistic a holistic perspective on what societal progress means. Yes. So you're not just concentrating on one measure. You're looking at lots of different measures of progress. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Marguerite, could, uh, I'd love you just to go back again. Like you mentioned, 2008. Uh, and even before that, there were lots of indicators or people talking about indicators. So we're, we're kind of 14 years into a whole domain of, of measuring and choosing indicators. And how do you see the position at the moment? And how important is it to have indicators? And you worked in that domain. Uh, what are the right indicators? Uh, sometimes people say we've got too many uh, indicators yeah. to look at. And others say, well, if you don't measure it, then it's not managed. Um, but you, you, the journey from 2008 to now, how do you see that as having happened? And where are we at? See, um, I mean... I've worked on indicators for a long time. I love indicators and measurement frameworks. At the same time, I think there can be this tendency for us to get really carried away by our love for monitoring and, and measuring um, without really paying sufficient attention to the underlying sort of paradigm shift that is needed. So while, uh, you know, I think it's, it's brilliant that lots of governments are developing these indicator sets. And I think it's really important because what we measure indeed often does not count. So it's important that we measure these things and that we measure them right. Um, but I do feel that in their current forms, often these frameworks so far provide very little guidance actually in terms of the deeper paradigm shifts. They tend to stay quite silent with regard to the relationship between social, environmental and economic outcomes. And implicitly often most of these frameworks still treat economic and social and environmental outcomes as if they're on an equal footing. Um, but I think if there's one thing that COVID-19 has shown us is that if, unless we have healthy people and communities in a healthy environment, um, there is no economy in the first place. So I think it's really important that these wellbeing frameworks become much more explicit about the fact that the economy is not an outcome in and of itself, it's a means to an end. Uh, and something that we can only really meaningfully measure and evaluate based on its contribution to our social and environmental well-being. And that's where I think a lot of the work still needs to happen. We're measuring a lot of things. But I think at the end of the day, it's that paradigm shift that really counts. Great. I'd, I'd be very interested. I know there are more we want to talk about, about what you measure, but it came across just last week or in the last few days, the president of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, was in Africa. He was the only non-African uh, head of state at a, a joint meeting there. And 
He was very, very critical about the, if you like, the higher levels of global uh, trade and so on, the World Bank and uh, the International Monetary Fund and how they, to a certain extent, have a huge impact on the developing or so-called developing countries. And I'm just wondering uh, your thoughts about, like, when we when we think about these uh, frameworks, we generally think of them as being national frameworks or countries yeah. looking at them. Right? Yeah. But the systems that we're talking about are global systems, you know. Yeah. Uh, would you have any insights into how we might tackle those underlying or if you like the systems the global systems that are taking place or how yeah. can how can measurements at a national level help that no i think i think that's a really important point that you're raising i think a lot of the well-being frameworks that are being developed have been developed so far they focus on well-being in our own countries our own regions our own cities and of course, well-being elsewhere, we're an interconnected global world. So of course, well-being elsewhere is just as important. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that there's not a lot of focus on that in terms of well-being framework development right now, but needs to be a, be an important focus. I know some countries, so the Netherlands, for example, does have its own specific section on so well-being here as well as well-being elsewhere. And it's also what I really like about the donut economics framework in that it explicitly sort of builds in that dimension of not just looking at our well-being, but also the impact on well-being elsewhere. Yeah. Great. And while you were in New, in New Zealand in particular, you had involvement with lots of the different players there who were involved in this whole concept of shifting policy and measurement and so on what insights did you get about the roles that the players both public and private and and also political that they might have in the transformation of our approaches to well-being mm. so i think in new zealand the well-being framework is largely driven by the administrative side of government rather than the political side i think that's also really important that these tools are politically neutral tools so this so the, these frameworks have been developed by Statistics New Zealand, the New Zealand Treasury, in consultation with other government agencies, but of course also civil society, businesses and, and the wider public. I think a real strength of the New Zealand approach has been that they work with both a generic and an indigenous well-being framework side by side. So really recognizing that there are diverse views on what societal well-being means. Um, and I think what the framework has done, and especially by building it into the budget process, is that it has helped to strengthen policy coherence so that it's no longer just the Ministry of Social Development, you know, looking at social outcomes, the Ministry for the Environment, looking at environmental outcomes, etc. But that well-being priorities, the five well-being priorities that have been defined in New Zealand, that they become the responsibility of every government department to work towards. And I think that's really been a really important shift. I think also what has been important is that they have approached it as an ongoing learning process and knowing that it's impossible to get these things right like first time around. So after the launch of the initial well-being budget in 2019, they've been making ongoing improvements. So it's really been a journey for them and step by step. And they're still making improvements every year to help anchor this well-being perspective, both from the generic and an indigenous point of view into their policy policy development. Would you say that the you might call it the success of the 
administrators, to a certain extent, is a counterbalance to the lack of political vision. And, and maybe I'm, I'm not specifically talking about uh, New Zealand, but in order to have a transformation, particular transformative vision is required. And can that come from public administrators? Or is it is it necessarily the a political will to change the system and to communicate that to the broader public? How would you see that happen? <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, clearly you need both. Um, and I think a lot of the work on well-being had been happening in New Zealand a long time before the government at the time announced the well-being budget. Um, so work had been happening for more than 10 years. So I think you definitely, of course, yeah, you need both both sides to actually come together. That is a much more tricky question. <laughs> the question about the political sort of buy-in and will is, of course, a much more tricky and challenging question. Although I do feel with all the crises that we're literally seeing outside on our doorstep right now and sort of the, the public awareness of that, the growing sort of unrest. So it's like a public awakening, I think. Of, yeah. uh, there's a particular interest in Ireland in culture and language and the to a certain extent the specificity of our heritage. You know, in Ireland we're very fond of talking and saying that we're good talkers and we're good conversationalists and so on. Whether we are or not, it's another question. But we also have a whole history of having been colonized and having been part of the British Empire and the language and culture having been in certainly in parts of the country being put down, you know. So obviously some of these questions were key in New Zealand. So I'd be very interested to hear your own thoughts on that approach to linking culture and well-being, and particularly like the issues about the Maori language and culture in New Zealand. Yes, of course. So in New Zealand, well-being, um, as I mentioned, is looked at through both a generic and an indigenous lens. Now, I wasn't personally involved in developing the Māori version of the well-being framework, rightfully so, because I'm not actually Māori. So, um, but I had an, um, an opportunity to help the team of Māori researchers to help translate their notions and views on well-being into a measurement framework. And I think this Indigenous framework is so important because, as the Māori community pointed out, like their well-being was constantly being judged and portrayed in the media based on a Western set of indicators. There's this constant flow of newspaper articles about how health outcomes and educational outcomes are worse for Māori, etc. And now, of course, it's not that these inequalities are not important, but at the same time, when your community and your people are always being portrayed in this negative light, it's not very empowering. And I think a lot of Māori felt that these indicators actually only told half of their story. So what Te Kupinga, the survey of Māori well-being, tried to do was to develop a set of Māori well-being indicators, so looking at well-being through an Indigenous lens. The survey was developed by Māori for Māori, which I think is really important. And so half of the survey consists of generic indicators. So things like health and education and adequacy of income, those kinds of things, things that are important to all of us. But the other half of the indicators were things that are or are things that are specifically important from a Māori worldview. So things like their connections to family and ancestors, which is often really strong connections to their land, and also, as you mentioned, the health of the Māori language. So these are, so it was kind of providing a much more balanced view of what well-being means as seen through a Māori, a Māori lens. 
And with these indicators, like are these then revised annually or every few years or something? Or um, and how is the information gathered? Or do you know? I'm curious. Yeah. So the survey um, is being run. I need to. I think every five years. So the the data is being updated every five years after the census. And some of these indicators have now, which I think is interesting, actually moved into the general social survey. So, for example, the health of the Mari language is now not just being asked of people who identify as being Māori, but it's also it's now being measured in the for everybody in New Zealand. So everybody gets to answer how well they feel they can speak to Reo Māori. Um, and I think that's important because, again, language is a way of communicating, so it's important to look at this. So it's, it's good to see how some of these indicators have now really moved into the ge generic sort of set of sort of well-being indicators. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'd be curious to know what the process was, or how whose idea that was, and and how it came about. No, gosh, <laughs> I think it's just yeah, like as we said before, like sometimes when things are not being measured. Although I mean, mm. the health of the Mali language had been followed for before that as well. It had been monitored for quite a while, but I think measuring things does help to put things on the agenda. So. Yeah, by having the this sort of set of cultural indicators, there was more data available, there were more stories to tell about this. And so it kind of helps to then put this on the on the wider agenda as well. I'd just like to perhaps turn a little bit to We All, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. FASTA, this organization who is organizing the podcast, has been uh, one of the, the, the founders of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance hub in Ireland. And we're very much involved and active in the programs that are going on, including the Cultural Creatives Program. But I'd be very interested for you taking up a new role in We All, just to talk a little bit about the organization itself, its aspirations, and where you fit in. Maybe you might say a few words about your own role there. Yeah. So I joined Wheel in September last year in the role of Knowledge Co-Lead with a specific focus on public policy. And so what we're trying to do at Wheel is to really demonstrate and show because often, like I said, so often the response we see is like, oh, this can just not be done. We're stuck in this system. And so what we're trying to do is to put together, to bring together all these different case studies and examples that actually show that change is possible. So that is one of my focus areas for the for the year ahead. I'll be working on developing Training is a big word, but like it's more we're trying to develop a set of materials, bringing all these different case studies together of how public policy can be done differently. So focusing on more preventative approaches to public policy, building in a more long term focus, ways of using a systems lens in public policy, um, as well as, of course, a more holistic view on what the outcomes are that we're striving for. And there are so many good examples. Have a look at the Wheel website as well, where there's a huge collection of case studies of how this is being implemented on a day to day basis. And hopefully that will help inspire and, and provide ideas for what is possible. And so we're developing these materials. The great thing is that we're also hosting together with um, Zoe, the Institute for Future Fit Economies. We're also hosting um, a policymakers network who come together every second Thursday of every um, second month. And so there we're sort of testing these tools out live with our policymakers network. They have an opportunity to bring in their own challenges. We often have presentations from external speakers on these themes of, yeah, like systems thinking and prevention being 
having an upstream mindset, these sorts sort of sorts of topics. So it's a it's a really nice mix of as if you can go on a world tour really of what would well-being policy look like and trying to bring in I think there's so many great initiatives happening in cities, regions, countries around the world. And what we're trying to do is to help bring all these different experiences together so that we can move towards a more integrated approach and to help accelerate this change. That sounds like a really great initiative. And I just wanted to mention that we had Jakob Hefele from Zoe on one of our other podcasts a, a little while ago. Oh, I guess, Sean, we, Sean, you weren't in that one. That was a, one with David that we did, uh, the European Health Futures Forum. But it was a, that was a really great podcast as well. It was We were talking about growth, growth independence in the economy and clear communication and all that kind of thing. And it was yeah, very interesting. They're doing great work too, uh, Zoe. Anyway, Sean, go yeah. ahead. No, I was just going to say, in the short term, your own personal responsibilities, how do you see that panning out? What are you excited about and what are you looking forward to do? Um, yeah, so I'm really excited about actually developing this set of uh, training materials, so really making that interactive. So Wheel has released a policy design guide earlier on, and so we're really building on that now to make that into something that is even more interactive. So this is really the next stage as part of that work. So looking at what does well-being policy means in practice and how, what are the tools building the, the well-being policy toolkit, basically. Great. And maybe again for our listeners, uh, just to let them all know that FASTA and the We All Hub are very much involved in Ireland in behind the scenes work with both the public administrators and to the uh, Irish Environmental Network, uh, linking in on environmental issues around well-being but also working at a political level. Um, so we're very much acting as a catalyst to put the uh, all of these issues that we've just been talking about on the national agenda in, in Ireland. You know. So maybe we might move on to talking about the future. Um, so you've just moved to France. You've made some very big moves in your own yeah. personal life. How uh, how do you see the the future in terms of the whole, not just the frameworks, but you know this whole movement? I think we talked with one of your colleagues about radical collaboration between different organisations. So, what are the key themes that are emerging into the future in this whole domain of the well being economy that you see at the moment? Yeah, so I think for me, it's really about that paradigm shift. So I think narratives are really important there. Like really, we can do so much work on tools and measurements and indicators. But I think at the end of the day, it's that paradigm shift that really counts. So I'm really fascinated by sort of the new, you know, new ways of of sharing this narrative that another type of economy is possible and what that could look like through like creative means. I think there's a lot of value in visual representation rather than uh, just reports. And so that's something that we're trying to do at Wheel as well to make things more visual, to, to use more video, different ways of sharing, sharing that narrative. But that to me is really the key because I think, yeah, before we jump into all of the, the different tools, um, it's really that narrative change that is most important. So far, we're still kind of treating social, environmental and economic as like all slightly overlapping circles rather than realizing that it's really an embedded model that we need to work towards. So that is a really important part of our focus. 
And maybe just also a call. Um, so the policy makers network that we're hosting together with Zoe is an open network. So also just an invitation for if there are people out there who would like to join, please do get in touch because we'd love to. It's a great, great group of very motivated policymakers who are very interested in this topic. So it's great to be. It's one of the things that drives all of us, I think, to be collaborating with um, such a great bunch of people in this space. And I think that's the collaboration that we're looking for at Wheel to really bring together this alliance of organizations and groups of people who are all working towards this similar goal. You've mentioned before that there are people from all different levels of policy, if you like, or different parts of policy. I mean, local government and also larger entities like national governments and so on. Just Yeah, exactly. I'm just saying that so, you know, if people are listening yeah. and are interested, they'll know that. It's actually a very broad... Exactly. Like, so we have policymakers from city councils as well as from, from national governments, or yeah. even international um, or intra-governmental organizations. So, yeah, everyone are very welcome, for um, open for people to join. Great, great. We'll help get the word out. <laughs> and we make sure we include a link for we all as well when we describe this podcast. We always do a little description and we make sure there's a link in there as well. One thing we didn't quite touch on, and it's probably more a personal thing, is although you mentioned the Maoris and the Maoris links in possibly with geography to a certain extent, you know, but I'd be very interested in your thoughts on almost like sub frameworks working locally or rather than looking at well-being from a national point of view with national indicators. Are there any initiatives taking place where you can move that down to, in Ireland's term, like a local authority or a region, a county, you know, where there, there might be a population of... I don't know, um, it's certainly not, not above 100,000, much lower than that. Are you aware of any initiatives around that about what, what our administrators call sub-frameworks, but maybe they're not because there are challenges around the data. Where does it come from? What do you measure? And do you measure or how do you, how do you engage with local populations through local authorities? Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I personally actually think that a lot of the drive for this comes from that more local and place-based level. And I think a real strength at the local level is that opportunity for a really participatory approach, which I think is such a key part of well-being policy for that wide participation. At the end of the day, this is a whole of community, a whole of society change we're looking for. So getting that buy-in from everyone and really working together. I think the donut economics framework has had a lot of traction in that sense. Uh, so the City Council of Amsterdam has been using its donut economics framework to really build a coalition of change makers, so including citizens, businesses and government departments, um, who are now all working together to improve environmental and, and social well-being. And they do that in really creative ways. I like how they're, they've got donut deals. And so for when, you know, different groups come together to jointly work on something, they can get additional funding called a donut deal. And so they've got, it's a really inspiring sort of creative process that they're um, involved in. But yeah, I think that local level is really important. There's a city in uh, Costa Rica, Curitabat, where they've changed the definition of what a citizen means to include native plants or native fauna and flora. 
So that's another, I've, I feel like a lot of these initiatives are actually happening more at the local level rather than at the national level where these things are a lot more difficult to suddenly change. But I think that's where really the, the inspiring action is happening and really moving towards a more ecocentric understanding of our well-being rather than a human-centric approach. That was Marguerite Freeling, the Knowledge Co-Lead of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share the link with your friends and keep an eye out for our next podcast, which will go online at the end of February. Agus Idrisha Agushin Bunagi Salt Erle Asla Ele Breeder.